Hi everyone, my name is Patrick Akio, and if you're interested in how people communicate, how to get dedicated teams, and how to let people grow and flourish, this episode is for you. Joining me today is my friend Julia Sullivan. She does and facilitates all of that and much more. Enjoy. Beyond coding. I was thinking because I, I saw you wrote a book and you said you've done podcasts and more so broadcasts. Where is like your sweet spot? Do you like written form content or also like conversations like these? Um, in where I think I... Both, really. Mm. Um, my Most of my work happens live. Yeah. But then I'm training people. So nobody's interviewing me about me. Um, and I suppose that's... That's what I'm, what I'm used to doing, working live with people, whatever, with whatever happens. Yeah. Um, I'm not really used to people interviewing me mm-hmm. about what I think. And, and um, so um, whenever it's about what I think and about me, then I like to prepare. So in, in that sense, writing is good because um, I, I tend to kind of edit myself while I'm, while mm. I'm talking. Um, so writing the book was a very good process for me to get my ideas together I don't write very easily yeah so I have to correct myself a lot um but I suppose I'm a bit of a perfectionist and then when when I've got it when I've got it exactly the way I want it on yeah. paper yeah then it must have been a process so it was a whole process it <laughs> yeah. was a whole process yeah yeah Funny. I don't yeah. label myself as a perfectionist but for some reason when it comes to writing like a lot of things irk me and I'm like, no, this can be rewritten and I have to really be like, okay, I'll either publish it or it's never going to get published when it comes to like a social yeah. post or, or content even on with regards to the podcast. Somehow I turn into a perfectionist when it comes to writing. Well, luckily I was, um, I, I, I was supported through the whole process of, of writing. Mm. And, um, and at the beginning they told us to like, just, just, just sit down, write, don't even think what you're going to write. Think of the day before what you're going to write on mm-hmm. and then just blah. Okay. So I would write without my glasses. Now I need glasses to read. So I, without my glasses. So I couldn't see what I was writing. And literally blah, 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 blah. And I knew it was rubbish. And they said, to, they said to us, you know, even Ernest Hemingway, you know, he started writing rubbish and then you, then you have to edit it. I'm not claiming that I'm Ernest Hemingway <laughs> here at all. Yeah. But um, that, was, that really helped us get over the, sentence has got to be brilliant interesting yeah because i yeah. i have a really hard time starting things and it's not just in writing it's in a lot of things that are new because i just see a kind of a, an uphill battle getting to a level of quality where i want to be and then starting is really hard yeah once i start i can really find my stride uh, and for example i had to write like a business plan because i had an idea and to get that idea i have to convince people and the best way to do so is make a business plan, talk about costs and benefits and risks and stuff like that. And I always knew like, okay, the ball is in my court. I have to do this now if I want to get it done. And still I postpone it to the very end. And then when I sat down and was like, okay, I've postponed it for long enough and I start writing, it's hard to stop myself because I'm like, this is a lot of fun. And ideas fun. go on paper, and yeah. but starting is really hard. Yeah. 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 There's off, even, often we're not even aware of it, but mm. there's, often that secret pressure we put on ourselves, like it has to be good. Mm. So, um, so that's often in the background when we postpone things. 
this expectation. But if you say to yourself, you know, just do, you know, just just write rubbish, mm. and then and then start start writing, you know, what you're thinking about, and then it takes form. And uh, yeah, yeah. I wonder if that's. I'm going to try it out, but I wonder if the it has to be good is more helpful or harmful because it has to be good puts pressure on you. It so puts pressure. In that yeah. sense, it could be harmful, but then it also. I mean, it drives me to do something good, so then it might be helpful. Yeah, I think I think there's both sides to it. It can drive you. Yeah, but if you find yourself postponing, then sometimes somehow it must be holding holding you and and me because I recognize it as well. It holds us back. Um, and there's there's a kind of arrogance in in without knowing it in in that thought. It has to be good. Because we expect ourselves to be better than than we are, mm -hmm. and it's normal when you're starting something new that you've just got to find your feet. Yeah, and you know people talk about you've got to fail so many times in order. I don't actually believe in the word failure. Mm. Um, it, I, uh, it, uh, we just have to start on something, and in the beginning, you're you won't be as good as you are when you've done it 137 times. So um, yeah. yeah, allow like us allow ourselves to start somewhere and get better. I like that a lot. Yeah. I think the hard part for me is the the perceiving what others do and then I don't see kind of the journey they've laid out. So if they've done it 200 times and I'm starting out, from me starting out, I want to be there already. And that is kind of the, yeah. the struggle because to get there, I have to do it maybe 200 times, maybe 300 times, maybe a little bit less, but I have to put in the work. Yeah. And then from perception, I don't see the work that was put in uh, to get to that level of quality. Yeah. That's the hard part. And that you see it a lot. And I see that with myself, but I see that all around me. Mm -hmm. That people, you know, they often, they want to be there. Yeah. Um, what, um, which is actually taking themselves for granted because you're not allowing yourself to be a learner. Mm. And, and when you allow yourself to be a learner, which we do with children, by the way, it's funny that we stop when people turn 18. Mm. Um, when you allow yourself to be a learner, then then you you know you you give yourself credit for for even starting. Yeah. You give yourself credit for trying something you haven't done before. Um, you learn from the mistakes you've made, um, and then and then you learn in a real way, rather than trying to copy someone else. Yeah. And and then you know you'll find that you make mistakes that somebody else never made, or you have a brilliant idea that another person didn't have. But you only you can only do that when you allow yourself to be a learner. You said we we start like that as kids, and we get taught like that, or maybe it's their innate nature, and somehow it waters down, and you'd lose that, or you could lose that, or you have to find that again within yourself. Why do you think people lose that throughout growing up? Um, I think there were a lot of. Um, let's say shared stories we're unaware of mm. and one of the shared stories is that um you know learning stops when you're an adult yeah and you know you go through so we we all accept that when you're a child and adolescent and you're a student then you're learning um but somehow there's this assumption that from a certain age whether it's 23 24 or whatever then you're an adult and learning stops. Yeah. Um, whereas I see that the whole, you know, our whole lives we're learning. 
Um, and they're all kind of, yeah, good question, actually, where that comes from. I, I can't, I don't really have one answer where it comes from. Um, but maybe as children, we, we look at adults and we, it looks like they know what they're doing. So we expect that when we're adults that we should know what we're doing. Um, and then you start your first job and everyone looks like they know, they know what they're doing and you're being paid, paid a salary. So you think, well, I should know what I'm doing and other people expect me to know what I'm doing because they're paying me a salary. And yeah, and before you know it, you know, you know you're 23, 24, 25, being yeah. paid a salary, thinking, oh my God, I should know what I'm doing. Yeah, and I, I don't. It really, it really hits home what you're saying because for me, as a kid, I was like, adults know everything. I was very curious. I asked a lot of questions. Sometimes I got the answer I thought was true. Sometimes I got a different answer, but I always got an answer. Uh, sometimes I got the, you asked too many questions, but still, I was like, adults know everything. And I also thought that going into adolescence, I was like, I don't know everything. I don't know how people do this. And especially joining my, my first organization as a first job coming out, coming out of my educational journey, I was like, people really don't know actually what they're doing or they kind of know what they're doing or they're doing a piece of the puzzle and they're fine with that and they've accepted that. But no one really knows everything that's going on. And maybe in the way that I joined or maybe the organization, but I was like, for me, it's obvious that I don't know. Like just because it's my first job, because of my age, because of my title, had junior in it. For me, it's obvious. So then asking questions, I don't really think someone is going to have an opinion of me asking questions. And then I saw other people really... How do you say that? Get far ahead by asking questions and get a lot of stuff done by clearing things up and by asking questions that I thought or that I thought other people knew so I didn't ask. And because of that, I think I've always hold, held on to that. I, I think asking questions is fine. Still now, I don't think I know everything. I think it would be very arrogant to say I know everything. Um, maybe I do myself a disjustice for some topics that I say I still don't know everything. But still, I think that mindset is better than having the mindset of, I've learned everything. Because then yeah. if you've learned everything, your learning stops. And therefore, your growth also stops. You're very wise. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Thank absolutely. You. I, I really think that, um, um, well, I, I agree with you. And, and when, when we stop asking questions, then our learning stops. And um, I mean, very often it, it, it kind of, I'm thinking Dutch here, mm. very often people kind of slip into it unintentionally. And it's not that they're meaning to be arrogant, but they, um, there's a kind of hidden fear, especially when you get to a certain age or you get to a certain um, level in your job, mm. <laughs> that you get the impression that other people expect you to know yeah. or that you feel the pressure. Um, and so almost unconsciously people slip into, well, you know, I, I'm now this level, so. Yeah. Um, and it's not that they, 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 they say, you know, I know everything, but there's a kind of hidden attitude that, you know, I, I shouldn't show my weakness. Mm. I shouldn't show what I don't know. Um, and one of, one of the things that um, people find very difficult to say, for example, in a meeting is, especially if it looks like everyone else understands what's going on. Um, I hear time and time again, people say, well, actually, I, 
you know, this meeting happened. Mm -hmm. um, it all went very, very fast. There was something I didn't agree with or something I didn't quite get. Yeah. But I didn't open my mouth because I was afraid of looking stupid yeah. or what my colleagues would think of me. I hear that time and time and time again. Mm. What, what about that makes the people not speak up? Is that the environment? Is that the perception? Is that how other people react or how their perception is of other people? What do you think that is? Well, a combination of all that. Yeah. A combination of all that. Because when you, whenever you put a team of people together, mm. whether you like it or not, immediately all this human stuff starts to play. Um, you get opinions back and forth, whether they're voiced or not. Mm. People just can't help it. People just have opinions. Yeah. Um, you get um, uh, kind of uh, arrogances that people aren't aware of, uh, um, insecurities, uh, um, tensions. All this starts to come into play immediately in every team, mm. whether it causes a problem or not. And let's say under the under the surface of the water, yeah, it's there, and every team member is aware that that's actually aware that that's happening. You're aware that your colleagues have opinions about things. Mm. They have opinions about, you know, football and what their neighbours are doing. So obviously, you're aware that they will have opinions about you too. So before you. Uh, you know, before you realize it, you're kind of trying to, you're taking that into account and you're thinking, well, what am I, what are my colleagues going to think if I say, I don't understand this or everyone in the, everyone in the room thinks this, but I think something different. Um, what are people going to think? So it's a combination of all that, of all this human stuff going on all the time in every team. Yeah. For some reason, I've always really enjoyed kind of the team building aspect. And if something was going wrong in my team, or I, I think something was going wrong, I would usually point that out or start working on that. But I don't have a, a silver bullet, let's say, and I don't think there is one, uh, but let's say a step-by-step -step process of really forming a team. For me, that's still very difficult because from... Xebia, we're consultants, so sometimes we come in as consultants where we already are aligned on certain values just through the hiring process, just by virtue of being part of this company. And then the team forming aspect, I feel like already has a leg up versus people that are just really random and put together as a team, which sometimes happens within an organization to a certain degree, and then all of a sudden has to perform as a team. And the expectation are that they are a team, but they are not a team yet. They're just a, a group of individuals trying to work together. And somehow through tried and true, through storming and forming and all of that, they become a team. But I don't know how to influence the, that, how to expedite that, how to make that team a real team that it needs to be to perform. Well, most people don't. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's something we're not taught at school. It's something we're not taught at university. Um, a lot of people talk about team building, but nobody actually knows what is a built team. Yeah. Uh, most people don't know. We have a definition what is a built team. And once you know what a built team is, when I talk about we, I mean, I have, I work with humanication and there are other trainers there too. Um, 
once you have a definition of what a built team is, then you can identify what part of the team isn't built yet. Mm. Um, and actually, there is a whole... When you, there isn't a silver bullet, mm-hmm. but once you understand, there are very, very clear, delineated um, building blocks to building a team. And once you understand them, it's actually, it's very doable and it's very good fun building a team. Interesting. But it's, it's not one silver bullet. No. <laughs> because humans are humans. So, um, uh, so first of all, it's, it's getting, getting the team to understand what is a built team, mm. which is um, it's a group of people with a shared, uh, who have a, a shared mission and yep. a shared vision that they, each of them understand what that vision means. They've all bought into it and they know what it means practically. Mm. Um, and they've all given their, uh, let's say, agreement to it. That's, yeah. that's a built team. When you know that, it's easy to, to build it. Well, it's not easy to build a team, but it's doable to build a team. What makes it not easy is that human beings are human beings with their opinions with their history, their opinions are, off, are by definition formed by their history, so they aren't necessarily going to agree with whatever whatever you say. Um, they also have their different communication styles, which means that they all um, absorb information in a different way. And um, if you trans, if you um, if you don't take that into account, you're going to create resistance. Yeah. Um, so you need to take all this into account. And once you know the building blocks, it's, it's really exciting actually building a team. Yeah. And then you know exactly what to do. I remember in my 20s, um, suddenly being given a position of responsibility. I was made editor of a tiny, tiny trade magazine, but I was suddenly responsible for a team of three. I don't know, I think it was three or four people. Mm. And I can remember f- from one day to the next feeling this pressure on my, on my shoulders like, oh my goodness, yeah, I'm now responsible for this team. And I really didn't know what to do. All I could do was like hope. Yeah. Just do, hope that everyone would give their best. And I was secretly dreading, you know, the day then I, that I would have to do some kind of an intervention because mm. I had no clue what to do. Um, and because because of that stress, of obviously I became a slightly uh, you know, I became a less nice person to work with because I was stressed about my p- position as a team leader because I really had no clue because no no one had taught me. Yeah. And it was only, I suppose, about seven years later when I understood. Ah. And I'd learned. Okay, these are the building blocks, and then it became really exciting. Yeah, I really like that you say right, a, a shared mission and vision, but people understand it. So people not just hear it or see it or perceive it as a written phrase on a piece of paper, but really understand what it means, what the thought is behind it, why that is what it is. And buy into it, which is the most important. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that as yeah. well. They can only buy into that if they've probably partaken in forming or 
yeah, I would say forming that vision, given their input and thought about it together. If someone gives me a mission and a vision, says this is now yours, I'm not going to buy into it. That's the, exactly. I think yeah. that's the prerequisite. Yeah. And also being aware that everything has its prices. Mm. So let's say you have a vision of, and in the vision, so vision is one thing, but to build a team, you need to translate that into practicalities of how we work together on a daily basis. Yeah. And imagine one of those practicalities is we turn up on time to meetings. And on time means not 10 minutes late. On time means exactly on time. Mm -hmm. Now, in order to get everyone in the team to buy into that, they need to understand there's a price to pay for that. And they need to be willing to pay, pay that price. Now, that price could be leaving home half an hour earlier. That price could be um, you know, cutting off a conversation that happens a half an hour before, before the meeting. Only when you've got everyone in the team willing, understanding that the, let's say, the, the mutual agreements between everyone in the team is going to require them to pay a price. They get it. They're willing to pay the price. Then you've got buy-in. Yeah. Is that also the, the practical implications you talked about? Because you said buy-in is one of the components and they need to understand what it means for them in a practical sense. Yes, yes. And, um, and also, it's not only the prices, but also the benefits. Mm -hmm. Then once you've got all of them to think through the prices and the benefits, then you've treated them like adults. They've been able to think it through. Yeah. And then, then you're on your way to building a team. Yeah, interesting. I was thinking about my own context and I have different different settings with different people, different amounts of people even. Our unit is quite flatly structured, our organization, and I'm, I'm part of the software engineering consultancy unit and it has about 60 consultants. Now in there, I always asked, or I recently asked, who's responsible for, let's say, improving the unit? And the answer quite generally was everyone. And that means that everyone is kind of part of this unit. Everyone is kind of part of this team to a certain degree. But then to have that shared vision, the buy-in, the understanding of the price and the benefits through 60 people, that is quite like a Herculean task, if you ask me. On smaller levels, it's easier, I feel like. If we have a group of three, immediately I feel like we're aligned better or things get explained in a, in a manner which makes sense and we can get this shared mindset and shared mental model of a goal and what it means for us. But as soon as it hits, and I don't know what number it is, I've seen it with eight get really difficult within a software development team. And now within my consultancy unit, we have 60. That is very hard to do, to get yeah. everyone aligned on the same matter. I don't know if that needs to happen, if some people can understand it better than others, but I would say that the biggest benefit would be if everyone understands it to the same degree. And that takes a lot of time and attention to a certain point. And there's a mismatch in also vision. Should everyone understand that or should a few people understand that? And there's consequences to those actions that come based on those decisions. Yeah. Do you think you can form a team with a bigger amount of people? Not even maybe 60, but definitely close to, let's say 10, 20, 30. 
even beyond? Well, above a certain number, it becomes it becomes difficult mm. because um, above I don't know whether it's between fifty and fifteen and twenty or to twenty five, r- roughly that. Um, there's a certain number above which you don't really know everyone personally. Yeah. It's probably bigger than 25. Um, so then it becomes more difficult. Um, but it becomes more necessary for each person to really get, let's say, what the moral values are in that team. And for that person to understand that it affects them as a human being. Mm. So I'm not just talking about the mechanics of how we work together and not just talking about the mission that everyone buys into it. Um, but let's say the moral, ethical quality of what it means to be part of this team. So here we're talking about values um, now, a lot of companies work with values, but very often they're just, you know, I don't know, whether it's we're a service-oriented team. Mm. What does that mean? It could mean everything. It could mean everything. <laughs> yeah. It's only when you as an individual understand what, at your core, what it means um, and and that it applies not only to how you handle your clients, but it also applies to how you handle your colleagues. Mm. And how your colleagues handle you. Yeah, both ways. So that, it, so that it affects every phone call you have with each other. It affects every meeting. So actually, every activity you do with your team should be, um, should be formed by these ethical values that you've all agreed to. Mm. And then you will notice, then people will notice in the team, what, if, they've, if they're clear on what these are and they're clear on what it means practically, then it will be clear to them when, when someone stepped out of it. Yeah. I think the hard part for me is to, for me being in a team, to consciously think about kind of what we agreed upon, both on a moral value and an ethical value. I usually just, Go with my gut in kind of a feeling sense. And then if I were to step out of that, I don't know if I've ever done that, but then for someone to call me out on that, we have to more so consciously be aware of our understanding of what it means to be a team and our values and if they're aligned and if someone steps out of that more consciously than I'm doing now. Do you think that should be the case as well? Should I consciously think about those things or how does it get kind of subconsciously or unconsciously? Well, what you don't want... Is, is for it to become yet another obligation. Yeah. Because then you'll get weighed down by so many expectations. You want it to be, um, you want to really get it. Mm. Now, that you can only do when you've, when you've learned, how can I say this? I do understand what you're saying. Because yeah, it it shouldn't it shouldn't be like a list of of um, expectations because no. then you won't be spontaneous anymore. It'll weigh you down. Yeah, but for for me, when you said some people or, or you would just need to get it, I've talked to people and are are I don't know if it's values or I don't know if it's 
it's also vision are so misaligned that I'm just like, all right, to a certain point, we argue, we don't understand each other. We just don't get it. We, we cannot align. It's because of a different past, probably previous experiences, which lead us to believe something different. And then we either have to accept that we agree to disagree, or we can really not align on this, and that, can, that clash can result in something worse. It's never happened to me, but I do understand that at some point, I were to say, I, I literally said to my colleagues, like, it's, it's just not in their DNA. It's literally a, a DNA mismatch. And that's really hard to overcome. What, of, what can be the case? I, some, see, I'm, I'm, I'm switching between Dutch and English. <laughs> Kijk. Um, what is often the case is that, um, let's say, uh, deep down, actually, you want the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, but there are so many layers of opinions, communication style, past disappointments, um, so many layers of the human stuff that are getting in the way um, that unless until you've handled those, you won't discover that actually you want the same thing. Mm. I'm not saying that it, that it's not possible for you to have completely different visions. Yeah. Um, but in most cases that I work with, um, once we've got to work and you've cut through all the human stuff mm -hmm. and people dare to be really real, yeah. then they discover actually we do want the same thing. Um, because coming back to coming back to what we were talking about earlier on why people stop learning when they're, when they've left the university and they start working um, is that somewhere along the line, all of us have learned that it's um, not good to make mistakes. Mm. We say it's good to make mistakes, but in practice, we don't like it. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good because we feel stupid. Somewhere along the line, we've learned this. Um, uh, it may be started by, you know, at some point, some adult said to us, you know, watch out, be careful. And then as a child, you learn that you know, the, the world is a, a scary, is a, is a dangerous place and that you, you, know, you need to think, you know, five, six, seven times before you take an action. And we, we, we take that with us and we remember it. So people learn to be very cautious and they learn to hold up a kind of a mask and pretend to pretend in a certain way, mm. like to pretend, you know, to do your best to show that you're intelligent, to do your best to show that you're well informed or that you're professional. So without realizing it, most professionals are holding up a kind of a mask. Mm. Um, and that is one of the reasons that um, tensions arise between people in teams that it looks like people don't want the same thing um and uh yeah you need to, you need to deal with that before before getting to the core and realizing that actually you want the same thing yeah it's interesting that you you label it as a mask because i've i've explained this to i mean in different settings even to my parents when i'm with my friends i'm a different kind of person than when i'm at home because my home was a bit more strict, and with my friends I had more freedom to explore as a kid, for example. 
And even at home or, or with my siblings, I say when I'm at work, it's a kind of a different version of me. What you're seeing on a recording on a podcast is still kind of a different version of me. They're all different versions of me. And I hope I am still my authentic self and I don't feel like it is a mask. But yes, I feel like the more kind of stigma you have on how you should act, the further away you go from being your true self at work and the further and further away all of a sudden that masks clash, let's say, whereas you really like the person sitting across from you. But in that setting, in a professional context, you clash. Whereas when you were at a bar, you can talk like friends and it's a different setting. And I was maybe a bit unfair with the word mask. Sure. It's, I'm not saying that people continuously have a mask. Yeah. It's just that, you know, when we feel attacked, when we, you know, when you're in an argument or a discussion and uh, you feel strongly about something and the other feels strongly in a different way about something, then uh, we find all kinds of different ways to, you know, to, 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 to hold our, you know, to hold our, to take a stand and show that we're right. Yeah. Um, that's one way of, of holding up a mask or where you kind of, or where people secretly feel, you know, what, you know, do, you know, I'm, have I got enough experience for this job? And uh, so it, it, it sounds very um, cruel to call it a mask. I don't mean it cruelly. Um, um, but what I mean is doing your best to look the part. Really. Yeah. Yeah. And, and very often it works. Mm. I'm not saying it doesn't work, but there are some places where it doesn't work. Yeah. I think it's, I'm trying to think because I was wondering how to break through that. And the only way to do that is if everyone kind of drops that mask and literally states their opinion truthfully without being fearful of what others think. So the environment needs to be safe enough to do that. Other people need to be aware and not judging and not hold that against that person because otherwise they're going to shut down in, in any future interactions. I think a whole lot needs to be in place for people to be kind of their true self in those interactions and especially within an organization because an organization has a brand, has a reputation. People have a certain idea of what they should do to uphold that. Look at other people and perceive them being not really truly themselves, maybe even unawarely. Um, so it's really hard to break that down, I think. This is, this is what I do. Yeah. It's very, and it's very exciting. Um, it's not hard. You just know, need to know how. Mm. Well, how would you start? A good place to start is for a team to under, to learn communication styles. Mm. Um, 90 to 95% of tensions, unspoken opinions, unspoken tensions, misunderstandings, um, even people leaving their jobs, even um, projects that fail, 90 to 95% of that is to do with differences in communication styles. Mm. Um, and this has to do with how people, how people talk, how their body language. So um, imagine you, you meet a new colleague Within the, within the first fraction of a second, whether you like it or not, you form an opinion of that person. Mm -hmm. um, 
this also happens, you know, you're at, you're at a conference and you, you talk to someone within a fraction of a second, you have an opinion about them. And you think, I, you know, this person is a, this person is a very charismatic person, for example, or this person is a bit unsure of themselves or gosh, this, you know, this person is chaotic or now this happens within a fraction of a second. And, um, 90 to 95% of that is to do with communication styles, mm. but we don't realize it. Now, the other person is doing the same to you. They form an opinion of you. Now, this happens in a team all the time. And um, we form opinions about other people and we think they're chaotic or we think they're unreliable or we think they're being um, unnecessarily uh, cautious or, or that they're... Um, What's the word? Bot in Dutch, which is um, rude. Rude. Yeah, yeah. And most, and in most cases, that's got to do with communication styles. Mm. But it causes a huge amount of tension in teams, whether it's spoken or not spoken. Because let's imagine you're working with a manager and you think he's rude, and you think or he, she, he or she is uninterested in you, um, and that's going to affect your performance. That's going to affect your happiness. Um, that's going to affect how relaxed you feel with that person. And in most cases, that is absolutely not the intention of the person. It's just how you've interpreted their communication style. Yeah. So for a team to learn, to learn to work with communication styles is the best, is the best starting point. And then they'll re and then, um, what happens is, uh, teams then realize, oh my goodness, um, suddenly kind of 50% of the potential uh, tensions just kind of dissolve. Yeah. Is it more so from the, <clears throat> sorry, is it more so from the interpreting side or also from the person that has that communication style? Because for myself, I like to be flexible in communicating to get stuff done, basically, to get more stuff done. And I think part of that would be to switch up my communication style based on the person that's in front of me. Yeah. It works both ways. Mm. So um, you want to be able to read the person who's talking to you so you understand that they're not being rude. Yeah. They're not being chaotic. It's just their communication style. Um, um, but by the so same token, when you're talking to someone, you need to be able to talk in their communication style so that they get you. Yeah. So that they realize that you're not being rude, you're not being, um, uh, well, if you're too flexible, by the way, they may think certain styles um, may think, oh my goodness, this is taking too long. Mm -hmm. So so it works both ways. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're somebody in a team and you feel that you're not being heard, um, you want to learn communication styles so that so that you get heard. Exactly. How does a team get aware of what each other's communication style is other than just day-to-day -day interactions yeah. in that way? It takes, it, it takes half a day of a training to, to, to see it and get it, yeah. and it takes a day to learn to work with it. Mm. So, it's, so it's part of you, yeah. so that you work with it naturally, so that you can use it at home with your kids, so that you can use it at home with your partner, because it's really about talking to people. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've heard this one before of like colleagues in the past 
that they're like, I'm aware this is my communication style and I do not care. I don't want to adapt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you have people like that in a team, how, how do you solve that or how do you work around that? Well, first of all, it's absolutely their prerogative. Of course. It's up to them to decide. Yeah. Um, um, when it's about colleagues, they may not care. Mm. But when it's about their two-year-old kid, they probably will care. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so in all the work I do, it's, it's, it's all about communication with people. So the way you communicate with your colleagues at work, um, you know, is actually no different from the way you, call, you communicate with your child. Of course you talk about different things. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're able to talk, to create connection and understanding and humor and mutual respect with anyone at your work, then you're able to do it with your two-year-old child. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I, I'm going to use that probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, why not? Once people, once a team or individuals understand each other's communication style, understand kind of their default and even their preference, because I think those might be different or they might be aligned, what would then be next? in kind of allowing people to have comfort in the way that they're working within a team or within an organization? It's also very important in a team to create okayness to be honest. Mm. And one of the commonest problems in teams is that past frustrations or disappointments are not communicated because people are worried about being seen, seen as negative or whatever. Yeah. Um, now, people talk about being transparent, but in practice, it's, uh, it's, it's more challenging than in theory. Mm -hmm. So you need to get... Um, so that would be my second step, is getting a team, first of all, understanding the the benefits and prices of being honest, of not being honest, for them to really get, when am I honest? When am I not honest? Mm. Um, if we agree with each other, we're going to be honest with each other. What are the benefits and prices? Which, Because um, uh, let's say we agree we're going to be honest with each other. It sounds good on paper. Yeah. And it's easy to say. But if we mean it, that means that if you come to me and you say, hey, Julia, you know that meeting we were in last week? Well, what you did in that meeting, that didn't work for me. Mm. It means I need to be willing to hear that from you. Yeah. So I need to get that that's the price of wanting honesty between us. So it's first getting this understanding in the team of what honesty means, um, getting buy-in. Do they want it or do they not? Mm. Um and, and also giving them the tools to be able to handle, handle it if somebody else is disappointed. If your partner at home is disappointed about something and they're you know, angry or you can see in their body language that they're disappointed, that, that, that you know how to handle that. Yeah. And there is a way. Yeah, there's a very simple tool of handling someone else's disappointment. Your client, if you see that your client is disappointed, either in you or in your company... Um, how to handle that. You need to develop your confidence in being able to handle that. Now, developing confidence in a team 
is first of all, knowing the technique. If you don't know the technique, you will never be confident about it. Mm. And then practicing it. Yeah. And what, once you're confident about being able to handle disappointments um, without feeling attacked, that will create a huge difference in a team. Yeah, I think um, when you lay that out, kind of the price of being honest with each other, I'm okay with that, with people saying, Patrick, in that meeting, what you did didn't work for me. Um, that's objective feedback. People sometimes even jump into immediately advice. I would have done X, Y, and Z, but I'm okay with that. However, I have noticed that when I'm trying to do that with someone else, we haven't had that mutual agreement that this is the price I give the feedback, that not everyone is okay with that. And people jump into kind of a defensive position sometimes and depending on the context can get really emotional. And things, all of a sudden I've been in situations where I'm like, I don't know how we got here, but here we are. And that's a lot of emotion then, then and there. So not everyone might be okay with that, being aware or unaware of that. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I have a job. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. should people be open to that? Or is it also their prerogative to say, I, I don't want that? Because well, that's you know, a hard one th- for the me. The word should. Yeah. It's a great word. I mean, it's, it's easy to say, yeah, everyone should be open. But we're all human beings and we've all been there, haven't we? You know, um, I still get defensive if my partner gives me feedback on something. You know, it's, it's so... I. Um, I, I'm not a fan of the word should. Fair enough. Because, you know, there, there is a theoretical what we all should do if we were all absolutely perfect. Yeah. And then there's, okay, well, we're all human beings, so how to handle how to handle it? So how to handle the fact that we are all sensitive? Um, we all, we, um, we, you know, we don't like to make mistakes. So if we hear that we've done something that doesn't work, we do tend to get defensive. Mm. So how to handle that? So how to, how to handle it when someone gets defensive? Yeah. How to create openness and willingness to li- listen? And this is another skill. So these are all skills that team leaders um, actually need to have in, in order, for, first of all, not to be scared of being a team leader, yeah. to be able to handle anything that happens. Um and then when you're able to, to do this, so when you know, for example, how to, how to immediately see if somebody's going into resistance before they even notice it, and how to, how to create a dynamic that the person is kind of opens up mm-hmm. and is willing to listen to you. Um, yeah, these are very exciting things to learn. And when I discovered that you can learn these things, suddenly the the you know the responsibility of being team leader suddenly became very exciting did you learn that through more so let's say practical experience because you, you you talked about really early on in your career having those responsibilities and it, it to a point where it stressed you out or did that come more so from theory and then putting that into practice i didn't learn it through only through practice yeah because i just didn't know and what you don't know you can't know mm-hmm. so I learned it through doing a training. Yeah. Somebody taught me how to do it. It's like, oh, really? I never looked at it this way before. And I did several trainings. Mm. Um, You know, I sometimes think that these are the most important things, like how to to work with people, how to navigate 
tricky situations with people and we're not taught them at school. No. You know, so um, it took me several trainings, not, you know, 10 years of trainings, but really several to, 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 to learn the basics, to get better at it, to get, to get, um, to feel authentic in it. Mm. Um, and the more I, the more I learned, the more exciting it became. And I'm still learning. And I yeah. started learning this when I was 30 and now I'm 56. I think that's a great mindset. I, for me, it's one of my, my joys to kind of figure out and to make someone really excited and help someone. I don't know if that's nature or nurture. It's just something that's in me. I'm not sure where it comes from. And I'm trying to get better at that. I'm still always also going to be learning, I feel like, because the complexity of the conversations are, uh, that's kind of stupid, silly. The complexity is really complex. Yeah. (laughs) Those conversations are so complex that there are going to be nuances and differences and things you could have done differently to get to a different outcome or to get to the same outcome. Um, In so far that I think, I'm never going to stop learning that. But I do think a lot of experience-based, I'm, I'm very practical in a sense, and I'd like to go based off experiences. So when I am in a training, one of the my fondest memories of being in those trainings is more so role-playing. And then I think, okay, how much of role-playing is like me in an actual setting or me in this kind of safe space where we are role-playing and it's known that we are? Um, that's kind of the hard part putting into practice what I'm learning theory-wise or role-playing-wise. Yeah. The only way to do that is to be in those positions, but then not being as comfortable because probably with the same perfectionist mindset or the stigma of I'm team lead now, I have to do this, or I have to be able to do this, that makes it a bit more difficult sometimes being in my position, I feel like. One of the big eye-openers for me was getting that I didn't understand what my role actually was as Mm. a manager or a team lead. Yeah. Once you get that as a team lead, as a leader, once you get that your responsibility is to make your team members flourish, Mm. once I got that, that already took off a huge amount of pressure for me. Why is that? Because until then, I hadn't got that clear. Mm. I thought until then my that my role was to ensure that they did the job right. Oh, okay. That's different. It's different. Yeah. Once you get that your role is to get your team members to f- flourish and grow as human beings, first of all, then you get, well, you're on the boat, you're on the same side. Mm. Once they get that you get it, once you get that they get that you get it, yeah. then suddenly things look very, 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 very different. Mm. Um, and, and any intervention you do then suddenly becomes clear that it's for their benefit. Yeah. Not for the company's benefit, it's for their benefit. And then suddenly the whole game changes yeah. once you get once you get that. Yeah, I, being in that position and having been in that position, I, I open up more easily if someone's if I know that someone is there to make me grow and to make me flourish. Yeah. Because then I, I can be open, I can be honest. As soon as that kind of goes away, that is the hard part because then the walls 
come down and things are not being said anymore. Yeah. But I've I've had the fortune that I've worked with managers that really gave me the feeling that that was the case and also acted upon a way that I understood that that was the case. Um, and with situations where that was not the case, yeah, I felt something was missing, I must say. And I, I saw elsewhere um, to get a feeling in a sense from someone else then. Yeah. Yeah. How do you give people that? And I don't know how to do that. I think I do it maybe automatically or I try to because you have to get people into a place where they understand that and feel that and see you act upon that as well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They need to trust that. Yeah. And for them to trust that, they need to be able to see you, us, the whoever, the team leader, um, as a human being, mm. which means as a team leader, coming back to this cruel word of the mask, as a team leader, you don't want to be holding up a mask. You want to be as real as, you want to be real. Mm. So as a team leader, you need to show that you also make mistakes, that you're learning from your mistakes, um, which is quite a, for some people, a scary place to be. Yeah. And, you know, the whole thing of vulnerability that Brene Brown talks about, um, this is what it comes down to, showing as a team leader, not that you're always making mistakes, but that you don't necessarily have the last word, you don't necessarily have the answer, um, and just in, in the way you communicate, in the way you are, that your team trusts that that you are being real. Yeah. yeah I think that's foundational in, in building up that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that changes everything. I, I think so too. The hard part I have is that it really comes from you having experienced that with previous managers or previous settings, having been in that position, let's say, from the other side of the conversation. And with how people grow into those positions, I feel like if you haven't had a good experience like that, you're going to act upon what you experienced. And in that way, you might automatically create an environment like that and that foundational trust, or you might act in a way that you're more of a manager's manager and you're acting in the best of the company, um, not letting people flourish or not letting even people go when that might be better for their personal growth or personal career. Um, and you can say things about that, but I think that's my opinion. I don't think, maybe it's my experience, but I, I will always try and do what's best for the people um, that are in my team or sitting across from me in that way. I, I wouldn't be able to see it that much from the other side is the hard part. Yeah. And, and you're right, people, um, leaders very often take the lead from the leaders above them. Yeah. Um, so where the real courage comes in is, is say you're working for a very, very corporate company and the manager above you, the directors above you are very, very top down and they're very kind of, you know, di di directive. Yeah. Um, the real courage comes in daring to create a different culture in your own team. Mm -hmm. um, so then, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's brave to do that. I think so too. It's very brave. I've seen a lot of people do it. Um, 
it takes it takes real courage. Yeah. As one of my final thoughts, just because we're touching on this, and I think it's very relevant for some organizations that are out there. Have you seen this culture, let's say, within a team that went against the stream of the bigger organization, all of a sudden get the overhand um, and change company culture in a way that was beneficial for the people as well? Because I feel like starting within a team is is a nice thing, is a good thing. At some point, you do want the organizational culture to also uphold that because otherwise you're continuously going against the stream and that chips away at trust at some point, it chips away at energy. Um, so without kind of an overarching change, that might be hard and sustainable. Yeah, that's that's true. It's true. Now, one of my limitations is that I'm I come in as a trainer and I train a group of people um, and I often don't see it, the company then the year later. Yeah. Certainly for the, hopefully uh, I, I'm going that way, but for many years that was the case. So I don't have a lot of examples. Um, and uh, I'm certainly not going to band around names without having first checked with those companies. Of course. But I have seen in a couple of IT companies that certain departments um, started to create this this culture. Mm-hmm. Um thanks to the director of that department, that the year later there was a, uh, a call to, to do something about the culture in the whole organization. They looked at what she'd done in her department and they decided to do a whole culture change process in the whole organization. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it does happen. Yeah, that's amazing. It's, it's funny that you say that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a consultant, so part of my work is going to clients, helping, and then leaving, making myself obsolete is part of the job. And then I don't know what happens after. When I find out and things are still happy and they're still happy with what we've done, it's part of a a fulfillment that I don't know is missing sometimes, but I'm happy when it gets fulfilled. Um, So I'm happy that's the same for you as well, where you have those tidbits of feedback, um, where people say, well, this is the blueprint, how we want the organization to structure itself, because this is valuable to us. And sometimes, um, sometimes I hear from people who say, thank you, this really, really, you know, now I get what leadership is. I've decided to leave the company. But the way I communicate with my kids and my partner and the way I'm communicating my new company is uh, is completely different. So, yeah, sometimes people decide to leave because they're clear on the fact that the match isn't there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, And that's amazing as well. Yeah. For those people. Yeah. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Julia. Me too. Talking about how to form a team, what really makes a team, how to get people to be comfortable within a team from a leadership perspective, talking about communication styles and honesty. Is there anything that's still missing that you'd still like to add? Not really. No, I think we've, we've, we've covered it. Yeah. Um, the thing I would like to leave people with is once you get that work is actually about relationships with people and making them work, then work becomes very, very exciting and meaningful. Yeah, meaningful is the the essence there. And that you never stop learning. Yeah, I love that. Let's round it off here. Thank you so much for coming on, Julia. This was a blast. And I'll, I'll round it off here. Thank you for listening. If you're still with us, leave a comment in the comment section below. I'm going to put Julia's socials in the description below as well. Reach out to her, let her know you came from our show. And with that being said, thank you for listening. We'll see you on the next one. 
Beyond.